Kent Garrett. Welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now 80 years old. In 1959, we were the largest number of blacks ever admitted to Harvard. We entered Harvard as Negroes, but graduated as blacks and African-Americans. Our guest is Aaron Tang. He is a law professor at the University of California, Davis. On June 23rd, he wrote a New York Times opinion piece titled, There's a Way to Outmaneuver the Supreme Court, and Maine Has Found It. I'm joined by 14 of my Harvard classmates. Uh, Let's start with uh, Spencer. Yes, good morning, everybody. And... uh... I'm Spencer. I'm still uh, in sunny Florida, and I'm still a class member of 61, and I'm still uh, involved uh, deeply in spending my time with sustainable development and uh, and uh, historical writing. Peter. Hi. Yeah. I after Harvard, I worked with SNCC in Southwest Georgia, and one of the things I did there was to work on the congressional campaign of attorney C.B. King. And he was the first African-American to run for Congress from South Georgia since Reconstruction. And at that time, it was considered a pretty unimaginable thing to do. And a lot of the campaign was just educating people as a the possibilities and what in the world it was, all it was. And uh, it was part of the voter registration drive, of course. And that, his campaign, a real trailblazing campaign in 64. Well, it really led to everything that's going on in Georgia politics today. Jerry. Uh, Good morning. I'm in Pasadena, California. I Spent a couple of years in the Peace Corps, uh, worked as an environmental lawyer for the federal government, the state government, private industry. And we will forgive you for choosing the wrong college. (laughs) (laughs) Whoa. Uh, Bill. Yeah, Bill Collins. I'm Harvard 63, 20 years in the Navy, retired, still in my mind, bound by my oath of office to support and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And I think we have some domestic enemies of the Constitution in my opinion. Um, and I uh, worked for Westinghouse for a while, then the Savannah River site, and I'm retired now from all that stuff. David, David Allen. Um, I like to say uh, I have a, had a sampler of a life, although first of all, I have to go along with Bill and notice that uh, services and uh, Army infantry officer during the Vietnam era also had me supporting the constitution. Uh, there's more than one of us on here, more than several of us on here. Um, that sampler was uh, new ventures and, and midlife academic pursuits and later uh, activism, which I'm up to now, including stuff globally. Um, I'm wondering, uh, hopefully get a chance to get into it today, what our chances are of changing around some of those things in the Constitution that aren't working very well, such as the Supreme Court. But onward to the next person here, Ken. Thank okay. you. Okay. 
Marcy. Uh, I'm living in New York City with no air conditioning, not on oh. purpose. Oh. Very hot. <laughs> and um, I, it, my most notable work was um, being the information center for a, a mega battle to get on billions of dollars transferred from the Westway Highway and Hudson River Development Project to mass transit and other essential needs. All righty, Jeff. Oh, hi, um, Jeff Fox. I'm now living in Southern Spain. The first thing I did after college was I was a community organizer in very poor communities in Venezuela and, and a little later in Chicago. And from that, got into sociology, was a teaching sociology for years, uh, and finally decided that my, the best way I had to try to understand uh, and perhaps explain some of the great social conflicts was by trying to experience them through fiction. So I'm writing novels now. Mm. Okay, John. Oh, hi, yeah, John Woodford. After college, first we went to Mississippi, but not with SNCC in 64, because I took a leave of absence for a while. And then I worked in black uh, news media, Johnson Publishing Company with Ebony. Then I was editor of Muhammad Speaks newspaper for uh, about three or four years into the mid 70s. Then I went into newspapers, Sun Times and New York Times. And then most of my time I spent at University of Michigan, where I was um, executive editor of an alumni publication for about 20 years and I'm here in Ann Arbor and I've been retired for a lot of years, at least 16. Good, good. Getting good at it. I'm very good at it. <laughs> Doug. Um, hi everyone, uh, I'm Doug Shapiro living in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, I've had a, a very uh, curious uh, career. Uh, part of it was as an animal behavioral ecologist studying the behavior of coral reef fish uh, and especially uh, the behavioral control of adult sex change in hermaphroditic fish. <laughs> oh, hey, and welcome to uh, Liz uh, Mori. How are you? Nice to see you. Um, uh, so I'm Liz Mori, and I'm also a Radcliffe, Harvard Radcliffe class of 63. Marcy and I are on another, uh, another uh, Zoom together. Um, I'm uh, a mostly retired clinical psychologist. I spent the bulk of my adult years in Fresno, California. I'm a native of LA and moved to the Washington DC area about uh, 16 years ago because both of my kids are federal employees and I wanted to be part of my grandkids' lives. So reestablished my clinical practice here and I'm, as I say, mostly retired at this point. Um, I, uh, I'm part of a group here of Radcliffe alumni who have gotten together over the years. And uh, Carol Garvey, who is one of those people, was very, very interested in Kent's book. And uh, many of us have read it and have really learned a tremendous amount from it. Uh, I think what I'm doing currently is I'm the direct and direct descendant of uh, enslavers and uh, my collateral relative, Matthew Fontaine Maury, was one of the statues taken down off Monument Row. And 
uh, Maury Hall at Annapolis, I think, has probably changed its name by now. Anyway, I'm very interested in pursuing uh, links with uh, people who are descendants of the people that my family enslaved, and I've already been able to make one link with that, and I'm pursuing that. So that's one of my interests at the moment. Okay, thank you. David? I grew up in South America, Central America, and South America, and since I graduated, I was mainly involved with public broadcasting, public television in New York City and public television and public radio in Philadelphia, where we live. All righty, and Baron Tang, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you all for having me. I have to say it's a real honor um, learning about all, everybody on the room and all of your diverse experiences. So I want to thank everybody for their service in the civil rights movement and the armed forces and in other ways, um, making this world a better place. Uh, people of my age and generation have a lot to learn from, from all of you. So I, I hope you see the next hour, however long we're in conversation, is you teaching and not just you know us talking about whatever I happen to know a little bit about uh, on the Supreme Court. Um, my story, so uh, I think of, of most recent relevance. So um, I grew up in Ohio. I went to uh, that other school in New Haven, Connecticut, uh, and law school in, at, uh, at Stanford. I was a teacher, a public school teacher in uh, inner city St. Louis for uh, for some time. I did youth organizing work uh, for with young people around uh, school reform. Um, after law school, I clerked for a variety of judges, uh, including a Republican appointee uh, to the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals in Virginia named J. Harvey Wilkinson III, or a very famous Ronald Reagan appointee. Uh, and then uh, for, uh, of course, a Barack Obama appointee, Justice Sonia Sotomayor at the Supreme Court, um, with whom I have to say I was much more aligned uh, um, uh, in a lot of ways. Uh, and since then, I have uh, worked in private practice and, and now have been a law professor uh, specializing in constitutional law and education law uh, at, at UC Davis for the past six years. Um, and I think I got an email from Kent uh, inviting to, to join you all to talk about the Supreme Court. Obviously, it's been a very, uh, it, it's probably been the most watershed year, in, certainly in my lifetime, uh, uh, and perhaps uh, uh, all of our li lifetimes, it's, 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 I think, no exaggeration to say this year was a sea change in ways big and small. Obviously, abortion and guns are two of the, uh, of the big issues, but um, other issues, in including environmental law, immigration, um, uh, and a range of other uh, separation of church and state. So the Supreme Court uh, has lurched far to the right in ways that um, have pleased Mitch McConnell and his group, but are, I think, deeply concerning to a considerable number of Americans. Uh, historic lows uh, of Americans report great confidence in the Supreme Court uh, ever since Gallup has been tracking this, these numbers. Uh, so we are at, I think, an inflection point for the Supreme Court. Um, and I've written up some 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 pieces, including I think an op-ed in the New York Times that Kent saw, trying to suggest how progressives might respond, uh, how Democrats, how liberals who are worried about this, this right word lurch um, might take action to try and uh, to e either outmaneuver or outflank the court, or in, in some cases, maybe change it altogether. So I'm happy to, to chat with all of this about, with all of you and, and look forward to, uh, to learning. I was very happy to see someone put out concrete action you know actionable ideas or tactics uh the way you did in your article it was uh and, and you know because so often people who are criticizing are just expressing their views but they aren't giving a game plan but you really articulated one and i wondered are any 
state officials or bodies are they contacting you because it seems that they you've mapped out a feasible way for people to to uh, focus on ways to to uh, resist and strike back and yeah test these things yeah so i've been in conversation with some state lawmakers and advocacy groups um i think uh, uh one of the concrete responses that I suggested didn't need any assistance for me. It turns out the state of New York was already on it. So for those of you who live in New York, one of the biggest decisions the Supreme Court issued this term was in a case called New York State uh, uh, Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. Uh, New York, like many smart blue states, has a sensible gun safety law that says of course, everybody can can own a gun for self-defense at their home. That is a constitutional right for better or for worse after Heller. But if you want to carry your gun around in public, <clears throat> which it turns out is statistically correlated with uh, a huge increase in violent crime, gun deaths, right? states that openly allow people to carry guns in public, uh, turns out just more people get shot there than, than in states like New York. In states like New York, California, Maryland, se uh, several others, the rule is you can only carry a gun in public for self-defense, or the rule was, if you have a special need, a special reason for self-defense, maybe there's a restraining order out against somebody who's threatened you before, right? It makes sense to let you carry a gun. But ordinary people, they don't need a gun in public. We want to keep these keep those guns off the street. And the Supreme Court struck that law down in a very, um, uh, uh, I would say, overconfident opinion based on its reading of 16th, 17th, and 18th century gun laws. Um, but uh, I suggested in this op-ed, states like New York could respond in very concrete ways. One, it could restrict uh, uh, those who could carry the guns in public uh, based on individuals showing, uh, passing mental health uh, background checks, uh, criminal background checks, requiring them to uh, pass firearm training courses. And then also, and I think this is the most important, to enact a sweeping set of, of places, sensitive places, which is consistent with 16th, 17th, and 18th century gun laws in America, where uh, guns can't be carried by anybody. So obviously public buildings, schools, uh, but also crowded venues. New York's new law, Governor Hawk will just sign. Um, also says you can't carry a gun in any place that serves alcohol, which I think is a brilliant um, uh, uh, law. Uh, so um, what ends up happening is anybody can carry guns now in New York as long as they're law abiding, uh, but they can only carry their guns in certain pockets, certain places where it's less worrisome about a mass shooting or, or gun violence. Um, so I don't, I, you know, I don't think that's as good as just getting the guns off the street altogether, but it gets us um, quite a bit closer to the goal of gun safety. So those are the kinds of suggestions that, that John is, uh, is referring to. There are ways that we can respond. And what happened in Maine? Tell us about your Maine, what happened in Maine. Sure. So uh, one of the other Supreme Court rulings this year that uh, made some headway or some waves uh, it was a case called Carson versus Macon. Uh, in Maine, uh, as many of you may know, it's actually the most rural state in the country. There are many uh, uh, areas in, in, in the most rural areas where it's impractical uh, for school districts to operate their own high schools. There are such few numbers of students uh, that the state of Maine has allowed those schools, uh, the option, those school districts, to write a check to parents of high school age children, and then the parents can take that check and send it on to a private school uh, for tuition. And for about 40 years, Maine says, if you're going to do that, you have to send your children to a secular school, right? The state's not going to fund uh, uh, schools that engage in religious education um, just to keep the maintain the separation between church and state. And six justices held in Carson versus Macon this June that that 
discriminates against religious uh, institutions that want to operate a school so that if Maine wants to keep running this program, uh, uh, this tuition aid program for these rural areas, it has to allow parents to send that money to religious schools, enroll their children in religious schools as well. And what happened, uh, which I think was underreported, but really, really important, is Maine, which as recently as 2018 was divided, had a uh, Republican-controlled Senate, uh, but in, 2000, in the 2018 election, uh, the Democrats won a trifecta and they continue to hold both houses of the Maine legislature and uh, the governor's office. Those Maine Democratic lawmakers, they didn't just sit by complaining and, and criticizing the court, they actually passed the law which I think would be great for uh, uh, more um, uh, Democrat-controlled legislatures and state and Congress to do. Uh, and that law was very clever. It said, okay, we're going to have to fund religious schools if we want to keep this program, but we're going to pass a new requirement that says any school, religious or secular, that receives public dollars cannot discriminate against LGBTQ students, right? Cannot discriminate if refused to en enroll a lesbian or gay student or a transgender student. And it turns out many of the religious schools in Maine uh, do not want to admit gay and lesbian students or transgender students. That's part of their faith, their doctrine is that, you know, that those are, you know, abominations or sinful or whatever. Um, and so when Maine passed this law, these schools said, you know what, no thanks, we're not going to take the state's money. Um, and so what ended up happening is the Supreme Court's decision makes very little difference because these state dollars are no longer going or not going to go to these religious schools. The religious schools are going to say, no, state dollars aren't going to be used to subsidize discrimination against LGBTQ students. Um, uh, and so, you know, this is an example of the sort of, I think, uh, strong legislative response that, you know, that let that Democratic lawmakers need to be thinking about now. It's not, it's not only strong, it's smart. Uh, if we if we go over to the abortion issue, have you seen any strong and smart things happening there? Yeah, so admittedly, um, abortion is going to be much harder because it has a different valence or, or the nature of what the Supreme Court has done is different. So in the two cases I talked about earlier, you had Maine and New York, blue states, passing progressive laws, gun safety laws, laws separating church and state that the Supreme Court struck down as violating the rights of, you know, basically for better or worse, conservative leaning individuals, right? Gun owners, uh, uh, people who want the church to receive money from the state for schooling. Um, and, the, and when the court strikes down blue state laws, what blue states often have are clever workarounds. So we've talked about some of those workarounds. The, the nature of the abortion issue is very different. What we had was an earlier Supreme Court creating a progressive constitutional right or recognizing a progressive constitutional right that the Supreme Court later overrules in this Dobbs case uh, from June. And when that happens, the states cannot enact clever workarounds or it's much harder to because um, uh, the real problem is, is red state legislatures are now free to encroach on the right that no longer exists under the Constitution, right? So the problem is now roughly two dozen states have enacted or will soon enact bans on abortions at various point in pregnancies from the very moment of conception all the way to, you know, six or 10 or 15 weeks. So it's harder for blue states here to counteract it. Now, blue states have done some stuff. They've passed some bills protecting 
um, uh, abortion providers, abortion care providers, medical providers in those blue states. So that when an, uh, a pregnant person from a red state travels to the blue state for, for care, uh, the blue state providers can't be sued, uh, uh, can't um, have their licenses taken away by the red states. Um, but that doesn't really help if we're being honest. The people who are hurt most by the Dobbs case are low-income women, low-income pregnant individuals, and frankly, minors. Uh, uh, in red states who, you know, you've probably seen this terrible story about the 10-year-old Ohio girl who was raped by uh, uh, by someone. Um, and because Ohio has an abortion ban, she was not able to get an abortion. Fortunately uh, for the victim, she was able to travel to Indiana to obtain care. Don't know that that's going to work forever because Indiana will soon enact its own abortion ban. Missouri, Texas, Ohio are considering restrictions on traveling across state lines. Uh, um, so frankly here, what we need as a response is Congress to act. We need to win enough seats. If we're being you know, very explicit about it, we need to win two more Senate seats in the 2022 midterms. We need to keep the House. We need to carve out from the filibuster and pass a federal statutory right to abortion, which Congress can enact under its Commerce Clause authority. Uh, and that would restore some right for abortion care in red states as well, but that is an uphill battle. I'll go back to what you were saying in terms of restrictions on interstate travel for an abortion. Are states really, oh, I was going to say the word allowed, but under the Constitution, do you think states can really restrict that? So um, the word travel or the right to travel uh, exists nowhere in the Constitution, might like, much like the right to abortion. Um, now, if we were talking about a right to travel to buy a gun in a foreign state, I'm quite confident that six justices or nine justices on the Supreme Court would say, yeah, that, there is a right to travel. Uh, there are a number of older cases in the Supreme Court uh, acknowledging a right to travel, um, most recently in a 1999 case called Sens versus Roe, which involved a um, state limitation on welfare benefits that individuals receive when they travel across state lines. And the Supreme Court struck that down as an encumbrance on the right to travel. So there's lots of precedent saying that there is such a thing. Um, I don't think that precedent is terribly secure uh, as against a motivated group of conservative judges who which wish to restrict, um, you know, Sam Alito can write, could write an opinion saying the right to travel uh, in general is one thing, but the right to travel to, you know, in his view, kill an unborn human being uh, is not a right to travel at all. You can't, you know, there's no right to travel to commit a crime is how, I think maybe how he would say it. And so, it, you know, any constitutional right to travel doesn't extend this far. So I, I think um, it is an open question. A Harvard law professor named Richard Fallon said it is absolutely a hard and open question, especially at this court, whether state restrictions on, on the right to travel uh, will, be a, will be allowed or not. I have another question, if that's all right. Uh, as we know, FDR was not very successful in packing the court, got a lot of pushbacks. We've certainly heard a lot about that. Certainly with the current legislature, there's zero chance of that happening. But if by some miracle, uh, the Democrats were able to get majorities, do you think it's even feasible to add additional members to the Supreme Court? And would that solve our problems? I don't think it's feasible, but I absolutely think we should be openly pushing for it because of the, the, the way the court packing plan worked or part of the way it worked in 1937 is not by actually getting more liberal justices on the Supreme Court. Uh, it worked as a threat, right? Our best chance for the Supreme Court to re redeem its place as a trusted, neutral, independent arbiter is for John Roberts, who I think is already willing to do this, and one other justice to recognize 
that if they don't bring the court back into the mainstream with public values, with American values, um, there's a real threat that there will be 13 justices on the Supreme Court and then 19 and 25 in this institution that they spent their whole life uh, adoring and trying to protect is going to be the laughing stock. Um, so the real, the threat of court packing, I wrote uh, a piece in the New York Times right after uh, uh, the Amy Coney Barrett confirmation saying we should absolutely threaten to pack the court. Um, the reason to do it is to put pressure on these justices, much like happened, you know, you may be familiar with the quip, the, the switch in time that saved nine, Justice Owen Roberts, no relation to John Roberts, changed his vote on a series of important cases um, in 1936 and 1937, after Democrats uh, swept the, both houses of Congress with super majorities. That's the kind of public pressure, the calls uh, 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 today, the calls for court packing, uh, I, I hope can persuade the chief and one other con conservative justice to do. But I don't think it's actually a good idea to pack the court. Um, for one thing, um, you know, court packing has a pretty strong correlation with with actual democratic backsliding or collapse in countries like Hungary and Venezuela and Poland. Um, not necessarily when progressives pack the court in order to protect voting rights, because I think that's the reason we would do it. Um, it's because when we pack the court to protect voting rights, the next time the Republicans come into office, yeah. right, they're going to repack the court to ensure that the the Supreme Court uh, upholds whatever the you know the the Republican preferred policy in the moment is, and you know if Donald Trump uh, uh, Jr. Uh, is president in eight or twelve years, and now there are twenty seven justices on the Supreme Court, I'm not so sure that's very different from Venezuela or. or um, there is, I want to suggest if I, I know there are probably lots of questions, but I think there is something um, in an intermediate position, an idea that uh, for putting pressure on the court, that's something less than court packing that is promising uh, called jurisdiction stripping uh, that we can talk about. But I see Spencer's hand up. So maybe we can touch on, on that if people are interested, but, but I want to uh, pause for now. Okay, Spencer. Yes, that's a very interesting uh, comment. And um, I would like to extend uh, the question to, yes, the concept of packing where already exists is just the number of people that are involved. Uh, we're packed, they packed the court, you know, right now we're, we're looking at a packed court. Uh, and so the question is, does increasing the number of people on the court uh, then increase the chances, the difficulties of achieving a majority, meaning how many people would become within the term of a president available? And then the second thing uh, is that uh, the other option, uh, or it could be a concurrent option, is uh, what about term limits? So that uh, then uh, packing the court becomes less uh, lethal or beneficial also, on the other hand, uh, 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 to, uh, uh, because the people have to keep change you know, a lot. So what do you think about those two things? Yeah, so I think if you were designing a Supreme Court from the ground up, um, you might want some number more than nine justices. If we could start from scratch, you might want 13 or 17 or 21 to make it harder or less predictable whether there will be a majority in any given case. The outcomes will be more likely to straddle the political divide. Um, I just think because we are not doing that, any effort to add more justices is going to be perceived by the party not then in power as a naked partisan power grab. 
they will re they will retaliate at the next uh, opportunity. Um, and so, you know, it might be nice as us, you know, progress many progressive minded individuals to have uh, more Katanji Brown Jacksons for four years or eight years. Uh, I, I, I shudder at the thought of my children living under the rules of 10 Sam Alitos on the Supreme Court uh, eight or 12 or 16 years after that. Um, Spencer asked about term limits. Um, I think term limits are both uh, good and bad, good in a uh, maybe a way that's helpful for my grandchildren or great grandchildren, but bad in a way uh, that it doesn't really help us in the here and now. So the reason they're good is um, they're neutral, right? The idea of term limits applying to all justices makes sense across the aisle. There are many Republicans actually who think that's a good idea. It will reduce the pressure on individual confirmation battles. Uh, and so if we were to adopt term limits today, applying only to new Supreme Court justices, that would be a, a battle worth fighting. It won't make a difference for our lifetimes uh, based on modeling of, of Supreme Court justice retirement data and current age, the current age of the Supreme Court justices. It'll probably take about 50 years before term limits actually change the composition of the Supreme Court, right? We're talking about a, a, a conservative supermajority that's pretty young. That, and if the current justices are not bound by term limits, they will still time their retirements to be during aligned Republican uh, presidential appointing cycles. Um, so I don't think term limits really helps us in our current predicament, but they do help down the road. So we should do it. That's not inevitable. You can imagine there are proposals to uh, apply term limits to the current justices too. Uh, you know, maybe the senior most justice by years in office, Clarence Thomas would be required to retire next for, uh, uh, and then after him, the next senior most serving justice, Chief Justice Roberts, and then Sam Alito. Um, uh, uh, if that were the proposal, I'm quite confident Republicans would retaliate at the next opportunity by adding more justices to the Supreme Court because applying term limits to the current justice is just a thinly veiled effort to pack the court, to get Republicans off and add more Democrats. Um, so I don't see any politically plausible way to implement term limits for the existing justices. We'd have to grandfather the current one in, current ones in to have life, lifetime tenure still. Uh, uh, and at that point, it's it's probably kind of a marginal benefit for the problems we're worried about now. Doug. Yeah, I'd like to ask a question about um, uh, the the ruling that uh, people can uh, carry a gun for self-defense. And I'd like to focus on what we mean sort of by self-defense. I mean, it seems to me that it's one thing if you walk out onto the street and everyone all around you is uh, brandishing weapons and guns and some people are attacking other people and so forth, and you might be seriously threatened. And in a situation like that uh, might justify uh, you're having a gun when you walk out onto the street. But for many of us, I would hope it's the majority of the people in this country, although I don't actually know the, the data, but for many of us, that kind of a threat doesn't exist. And um, so I'd like, to, 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 to ask you whether there's any kind of a specific definition for uh, what the circumstances are uh, that justify carrying a gun for, quote, self-defense. Yeah, that's a great question, a lovely question. There were two different visions for what self-defense plausibly meant, and they were directly at issue in this uh, June 23rd case, uh, the Bruin case out of New York that, I, that we've been talking about, right? One vision held by New York, California, progressive states is your vision, right? Self-defense does exist for us. A need for self-defense to carry a gun in public for self-defense 
does exist for some people. There are some people out there, think of the uh, uh, the, the partner, the, the spouse, who's been the repeated instance of, of uh, the victim of repeated instances of spousal abuse, physical spousal abuse. There was a restraining order out against their husband. The husband is, you know, uh, sought them out and attacked them. They're in a, the, the victim is now in hiding in a shelter, but is always at worry, at fear of another attack, right? That person, you can make a plausible argument, that person might need a gun to defend themselves in public. Right. But you and me, right, no or no different than any ordinary American, not at real risk, right? Us having guns adds to the public safety threat. It doesn't detract from it. Um, that's New York's view. And the conservative justices on the Supreme Court, the six conservative justices, uh uh de decisively rejected that view. Right. In their view, um, um, they adopt this, you know, I think often disproven, but much uh ballyhooed view that the only way to stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. And therefore, what we really just need is more law-abiding Americans out there carrying guns, so that you know when there are random acts of uh, random shooters happening, we can take them down. And you know, if you've seen the footage from the Valde, the Rob Elementary shooting, where we had you know hundreds of you know dozens of good guys with guns running away from the one bad guy with a gun, you know, it's pretty clear that this theory is wrong. Uh, the data, as I mentioned, a Stanford economist, John Donahue, ran a very uh, uh, a powerful uh, study finding that violent crime, gun violence, gun deaths, gun injuries increase by 13 to 15% in the states that freely allow public carry. You know, 13 to 15% might sound small, but we're talking about, you know, tens of thousands of, of injuries, uh, hundreds of deaths because of these laws, needless, senseless deaths. Um, so I wish it were the case, Doug, that you're very thoughtful description of what self-defense really requires were one wildly shared at the Supreme Court, um, but I'm sad to say that it, it's not. Yeah, just just one quick follow-up, just a, kind of a personal thing, but uh, I lived in uh, West Georgia for five years, and uh, all of my men friends there uh, who grew up in the, in, in the South, every single one of them owned guns. And I, I, I think four out of the five or three out of the five carried guns with them. Uh, and these were people who are my age, uh, and they've been doing this for many decades. And I once uh, asked them if any of them had ever had a need or a situation where they actually felt that they ought to pull their gun out to protect themselves, and not a single one of them had. So it just seems like there's some kind of a fantasy that is prevalent in this country that you know life is so dangerous that we need to, to defend ourselves by carrying weapons. That's well said, very well said. Liz. Uh, yeah, um, needless to say, I'm going to go back to the abortion issue. Um, so I guess my, I have a couple of questions. One is what about the right to privacy? And the other is, it seems to me that if there were any kind of restriction on travel, that this is discrimination against women. So those are all, um, I, those are both very uh, strong arguments. Um, they, so certainly the right to privacy has been found to exist in a way that justifies, uh, for example, the right to use contraception, the right to engage in intimate sexual conduct with uh, a loved one, regardless of the sex of, the sex of, of one's partner. Um, uh, there are other cases implicating the right to informational privacy uh, that at least on the face of the Alito opinion, the conservatives do not want to jettison. Um, uh, certainly the argument that 
a ban on abortion or a ban on travel for abortion is sex discrimination, has strong um, origins, including in the work, prior work of Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, and current really powerful scholars like Melissa Murray at New York University School of Law. So these are all arguments that I don't think you're going to find any disagreement from, from me or maybe anybody else on the Zoom. Uh, it's just that uh, we have zero votes at the Supreme Court uh, and the six, six and the nine justices who do have a vote. Um, I don't think, I think it would be a mistake to uh, treat logic as, uh, as particularly relevant to uh, the five justices, I should say, in the Dobbs majority, right? This is a political project. All five of the justices were raised uh, uh, where uh, overturning Roe was an article of faith. It was a litmus test in their years in law school and the Federalist Society that, uh, uh, after all, their membership in enabled him to become justices on the Supreme Court. There was just no way for their minds were so closed to the possibility of reason or logic on the abortion issue uh, that no amount of, of thoughtful analysis is going to change, uh, I, I'm afraid, going to change their minds. Um, and that's part of the problem, right? Yeah, and I guess, I guess the reason I brought it up was in terms of subsequent to Dobbs, do these, do, do the privacy issue or the restriction on travel suggest any workarounds? And I guess the other thing that I'm wondering about is, you know, from my point of view, this is a religious issue. Um, you know, if, if you don't believe that life begins at conception, that's a religious point of view. And I'm, I'm, I'm again, wondering about all of these things in terms of post Dobbs, not necessarily that we're ever going to change anybody on the screen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so uh, some really good questions. I do think um, that there are some some clever religiously rooted workarounds, right? Because this happens to be a conservative majority that has a a broad, capacious view of the free exercise clause, uh, and sees violations of at least white Christian uh, uh, faiths everywhere. Um, but there are some lawsuits already, uh, in particular, brought by people of the Jewish faith arguing that actually the act of abortion in certain instances is religiously compelled and to, for states to deny access to get that kind of care violates the free exercise clause. Um, that, could be a recept that could be a winning argument, uh, but we should note how narrow the argument would be. It would only be for members of this faith uh, who can show a sincere religiously held objection uh, uh, to an individual instance where they're denied access to abortion that violates their their faith? So it wouldn't apply to you know ninety nine percent of the uh, uh, instances of abortion that that are uh, that women are choosing uh, uh, in in red states. You mentioned some other questions about workarounds. There are some possible workarounds. I'll tell you the most um, uh, low hanging fruit for a workaround that actually the Biden administration is, is pursuing. So half, roughly half of abortions that occur in America today are medicated abortions, right? As, as you might know, this is a pill, mifeprestone, a hormone that produces an early miscarriage of a fetus. It's uh, medically authorized for up to 10 weeks in pregnancy. So uh, it's uh, it, one can do this at home, doesn't need a, to be in the presence of a provider. Um, the FDA has said this is a safe procedure and so states, to the extent red states are banning access to medicated abortion, uh, it could be the case, and, the, and uh, Attorney General Garland on the, day, on the day of the Dobbs decision announced that uh, the Justice Department was going to take action to argue that state bans on medicated abortion are in conflict with 
federal law, right? You're familiar with the supremacy clause, state laws, if they're in conflict with federal laws or regulations, the state law has to give way. The federal government says medicated abortion uh, is safe and must be available and states say it can't be available. It's possible to argue uh, uh, that the federal law prevails. So this would ensure access to medicated abortion for 10 weeks. Now, the problem is the very Supreme, the very Supreme Court that's going to decide whether the federal regulation preempts the state law bans is the Supreme Court of the United States. They're going to be motivated by partisan preferences. So I'm not terribly confident that they would come out the right way on that, but that's an option. And then the other option is this federal statutory uh, right. Um, you know, at, at different points, people have asked about court packing, right? So recall that in order to pack the court, we'd have to uh, uh, eliminate the filibuster to pack the court. Um, at the point in which you're eliminating the filibuster to do something like packing the court, which is dangerous and less popular, you might as well just eliminate the filibuster to do something that is popular, like create a right to abortion that 60% of Americans would agree with, at least for you know the first 15 or 18 weeks of pregnancy. Um, so that is, to me, the most promising and durable workaround, the most durable strategy to protect reproductive autonomy, um, but it requires us to win uh, elections, notwithstanding you know current economic conditions. Kind of obviously, we don't have a neutral judiciary. It's absurdly non-neutral. Uh, there's always a question of, is this a red or a blue justice? Who appointed this justice? And so forth. Here we get back to something I raised very early on. Uh, Constitution's flawed in this respect. It's given us a judiciary that does not do what a judiciary might and should do. Now, there are cultural reasons why this is having many factors, many uh, causal problems in this tale. But um, as I raised early on, uh, and of course, we all know it's not going to happen, but let's ask the question anyway. Can we change our constitution to get something better here? And this isn't the only place where it matters, but uh, I want to raise a radical notion, radical question. Yeah. How about actually changing not just a not just an amendment, but money well changing where there's some serious problems, electoral yeah. college and on and on and on. Yeah. I think these are the right questions. And Again, if if we were, you know, if you got a bunch of smart people, even across the aisle, to sit down and write up a constitution from scratch, I don't think anybody would arrive at the constitution we've got. We've learned by now the many flaws, and as you've mentioned, the electoral college, uh, uh, just for starters. Um, so I think you know the conversation of serious constitutional reform is an important conversation. I think it's also not terribly realistic because you know it's already hard enough to get 52 seats in the Senate to carve out from the filibuster to do something like pass a Voting Rights Act, for goodness sake. Um, the idea that we're going to get uh, three-fourths of, uh, of the state legislatures and two-thirds of Congress to approve amendments, you know, substantially changing the way our government is structured in a way that will, let's be honest, hurt the Republican Party um, seems unlikely. But if you want to send, David, if you're interested, and I, uh, one that I share is, is, is putting the Supreme Court back in its lane Right, not uh, uh, trying to make it neutral or give it some reasons to be a neutral, independent, trusted arbiter. Let me suggest a option that is already available inside the Constitution, one that doesn't need constitutional change. So, Article Three, which governs the creation and the powers of the of the federal judiciary, uh, says that the Supreme Court shall have appellate jurisdiction, which is the only kind of jurisdiction it ever really exercises appeals cases decided below by lower courts, and then it hears the appeal. 
uh, over a certain set of cases with such exceptions, and that's the word the Constitution actually uses, as Congress shall make. Ooh. So in 1869, um, uh, Abraham Lincoln, uh, well, I'm sorry, a, a, a law passed during the Lincoln presidency uh, suspended habeas corpus for uh, uh, in certain Southern states during reconstruction uh, to try and bring the Southern states in line to, um, to uh, ensure that they would uh, follow the dictates of you know, ending slavery and so on and so forth. One of the laws they enacted uh, uh, stripped the Supreme Court, which the, the Republicans then did not trust, Republicans then being the good guy, right? The uh, Lincoln Republicans did not trust to enforce this law correctly, stripped the Supreme Court of jurisdiction to decide these disputes. There was a single sentence saying, the Supreme Court shall not have the power to review these kinds of habeas corpus cases. And when a case got to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court said, yep, we don't have power to decide this. We can't decide it, right? So there's precedent for that. So here is the best case scenario for voting rights. You know, I'll, I'll, we've been talking a lot about abortion. I'll talk about another issue that I think is important. The single biggest thing America could do right now to fix our broken politics is require every single state legislature, when it draws its electoral, its, its redistricting maps, its electoral maps for where congressional districts, state legislative districts sit, Right. As you know, a huge number of these state maps are gerrymandered for partisan advantage. So an example is in North Carolina, which is uh, controlled by all Republicans in the legislature and the governor. In 2012, uh, Democrat candidates for the United States House of Representatives won 51 percent of the vote. Republican candidates won 48 percent of the statewide vote in North Carolina. Um, but because of partisan gerrymandering, Republicans got nine of the 13 seats in the U.S. House, a supermajority in the House, even though they won a minority of votes, right? The best way to, uh, uh, and gerrymandering, it's not just about who wins and loses. It's also about the the the, the nature of who wins and loses. Uh, all nine Republican candidates are far to the right because their districts are so safe for Republicans that the real contest is in the primary. And how do you win a primary? By being Madison Cawthorn, going as far to the right as possible. And at some level on the, on the left, it's true too, right? The way to win your Democrat seats is to be this way. And so there are very few centrist candidates anymore who are willing to compromise. Um, having neutral nonpartisan commissions of geographers, map makers, cartographers, right? Basically people who are trying to draw districts in a way that keeps cities and counties and towns together because they're aligned, they're, they should be voting together. If all the maps in the United States were, were drawn based on that kind of a neutral criteria, um, everything would be better. There'd be, you, there'd be Republican legislatures and, and Democratic legislatures, things would switch, uh, uh, but uh, a huge number would be centrist, moderate, willing to reach across uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the aisle. So why do I mention this? Congress can pass a statute requiring states to use these kinds of independent redistricting commissions. The Supreme Court conservative justices have even said that. They wrote that in their partisan gerrymandering case in 2019 saying Congress could pass this law. Um, I don't have much confidence that the court, the conservatives would actually uphold that law when it comes to it. Um, I should also add that Democrats proposed exactly that kind of a bill, the For the People Act, uh, the main voting rights bill proposed by Democrats, uh, but defeated because of the Senate filibuster in 2021, has this kind of a requirement. What we should do if we ever get a big enough majority to carve out from the filibuster and pass that law is add a sentence in the For the People Act that says anybody who challenges the constitutionality of independent redistricting commissions uh, that uh, uh, those challenges cannot be heard in the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court lacks power to decide them, um, and that would and that would save voting rights, uh, 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 and and I think really save the American political system. Uh, Bill, yeah, two things. 
going back to the substance of the Dobbs decision, I think they did not decide that the fetus is a person. Am I right about that? That's correct. The justice is not that question open. That. Some states are enacting that it raises all kinds of other concerns. I mean, I, from a moral standpoint, think the fetus is a person. I do, but I don't want to impose that in the law because I think it's very troublesome, causes all kinds of trouble. So that I want to just make clarify that. So the Dobbs did not do that. Not yet. Uh, the, other, the other thing that's this compact of the states that is supposedly going forward, where states are saying we're going to assign our electors based on the national popular majority vote. And a number of states have enacted that. And it comes into force, I think, when enough states have done it to, uh, to have a majority of the electoral college determined that way. I think that's the way the plan is written. And what do you think the prospects of that are? I think that's great. So this is, you're referring to the National Popular Vote Compact. Right, um, right. And this is exactly the kind of clever workaround, right? We're never going to uh, change the Electoral College through the Article 5 amendment process because we need three-fourths of the states to do it. And none of the small red states that have outsized power in the Electoral College are ever going to want to get rid of their power. But why not have the blue and, frankly, purple states who would prefer the president to reflect the will of the American people rather than the will of, you know, uh, people in up, you know, rural Montana, um, nothing against them, but they should have a say too, but it shouldn't be greater than your or my say, it should be the same. Uh, and so the National Popular Vote Compact is a brilliant idea. If you can get um, uh, enough uh, uh, states um, to agree, right, 270 electoral votes worth of states to agree that they will assign their own state's electoral votes, not in accordance with whoever wins their own state's popular vote, but with whoever wins the national popular vote, then that would effectively get rid of the electoral college. Um, the prospects of that, I forget exactly how many state electoral votes have passed bills approving this. It's not close to 270 yet. The prospect of that happening would need some kind of sweeping demographic, uh, um, uh, some sort of landslide electoral change. Um, you know, frankly, the only thing that's likely to have that happen is if Donald Trump runs in 2024, loses the primary, and then runs as a third party candidate, uh, dividing the Republican vote so that Democrats win, you know, a significant enough number of state legislatures and, and so on to do this. Um, uh, but short of that, um, I don't see, you know, truly purple states like Florida, for example, signing on to that. Um, and so there's, it's a little bit of an uphill battle, but it's much more feasible than uh, actually getting rid of the Electoral College. The, I, the only thing I'll say about Dobbs is you're right that um, the Supreme Court does not squarely say that fetuses are constitutional persons. That argument has been advanced by folks on the, um, uh, in the anti-abortion <clears throat> movement. The implications are pretty staggering. If fetuses are persons who are entitled to equal protection of the law under the 14th Amendment, um, then, then actually uh, abortion would be unconstitutional and blue states, New York, California, would be constitutionally obligated to, to, to outlaw it, to ban it in order to protect the unborn fetus. Um, that is very much the next step in the anti-abortion agenda. A, uh, a very notable anti-abortion writer wrote, literally published a column just hours after Dobbs was decided saying, Dobbs is just the end of the beginning 
of the end of abortion, right? Now that Dobbs has happened, our work can begin, he says, right? And what is that work? It is to recognize the constitutional status of the of the fetus. Um, there are many reasons why this is wrong as a originalist matter, as a historical matter, as a constitutional matter um, that um, we can talk about, but I won't get in the weeds for now, but that is very much um, a plausible outcome that uh, I think four justices currently on the Supreme Court would be open to. And if the chief retires during a Republican president, there could be soon five. Uh, Liz. Um, I'm wondering what your um, thoughts are about the filibuster. I, I certainly don't have that settled in my own mind. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are about that. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the filibuster is great for whoever is not in power. Um, I have very little confidence that the next time Mitch McConnell is the Senate Majority Leader and there's a Republican president, uh, that they will be as loyal to the filibuster as Joe Manchin and Christian Sinema have been. Uh, and so my current take is we should do what, um, for example, Mitch McConnell did as recently as in uh, 2017 when they eliminated the filibuster on a single issue of pretty significant importance, right? Then the filibuster still existed for nominees to the Supreme Court. So when uh, Donald Trump nominated Neil Gorsuch, the Democrats filibuster, they had 45 seats at the time, uh, or 46 votes, in, uh, rather. Uh, they filibustered the Gorsuch nomination. And so, um, uh, Mitch McConnell eliminated and 54 Republican senators voted to eliminate the filibuster just for Supreme Court nominees. Right. And they had some cover because it was uh, um, Harry Reid controlled uh, Democrat controlled Senate in, I think, 2009 that had eliminated the judicial filibuster for lower court appointees. So the Democrats, in some sense, fired first. And so the Republicans said, we're just retaliating. You know, we're doing what they did. Um, well, I, I think we should we should make that same. We should not get rid of the filibuster altogether. I think we should carve out on a case by case basis for really important issues. Voting rights absolutely qualifies, as David was talking about earlier. It is the fundamental issue uh, on which all other, you know, it's the right that's preservative of all other rights. So I think we have to be able to carve out from the filibuster to enact voting rights reform. I would include a reproductive autonomy in that. Maybe others might not, uh, but I wouldn't include, you know, for example, um, you know, some an economic stimulus package, although that can probably be enacted through reconciliation anyways. But like, you know, basic economic issues, um, as much as I might care about them, don't strike me as uh, uh, as 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 fundamental. But that's that's just my one person's take. John. Oh, uh, I was going to wonder with the scientists we have. Isn't it right that uh, before there's a fetus, there's an embryo. They can't say that they they're not saying that an embryo is a person now are they so in the embryonic stage uh there should be an argument that that's where the uh abortions take place without even killing a fetus i'll just comment some states have enacted laws that that make it the moment of conception well that's not a fetus there are those who believe that even in its embryonic stage or even as a zygote from the moment of conception, mm -hmm. that there is a whole separate, unique living human being at that point, at that, that very moment in time that is entitled to the same rights and privileges as, a, uh, as an adult human being. Um, so there are many people who believe that I, it's not a view that I share, um, but it's a moral view that is, I think, widely held. I, I don't know whether the rest of you have seen the uh, newest release of the woman driving in the carpool lane who's oh, yeah. says, hey, uh, there are two of us here, so you can't give me a ticket. So. <laughs> I love yes. it. I love it. There's a court case. Marcy, yeah. I, I Marcy's think it's been trying to speak. 
Go ahead, Marcy. Marcy. Um, if, if an important goal of the Republican Party is assumed to be to increase the relative wealth of the 1%, the expense of the 99%, the question is, do the six conservative judges, justices share that goal? And if so, do they share it uniformly? Or are there chinks? Well, that's interesting. Um, so I think the way that the six conservative justices would tell the story is, is um, I can see I, your narrative is honest. It's 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 relatable, and it's one I'm sympathetic to. Um, but you know, I think the six conservative just, justices would tell a little tweaked version of the story. It would be the Reagan trickle down economics version of the story that you know. Um, when in a capitalist system, when the wealthiest can generate wealth for the rest of us and they can benefit from it, it's a rising tide that lifts all ships, all sorts of economic data evidence suggesting that's not really accurate uh, for various ways. Um, but I do think that is a, um, a view that's generally held. Uh, among the six conservative justices to the extent it's certainly held by, you know, even the chief who's often viewed as the most centrist of them. He is a cha US Chamber of Commerce kind of a guy. Uh, um, but it, to the extent that one of the six doesn't hold it, it's actually Neil Gorsuch. Uh, Neil Gorsuch um, is a is more of a libertarian streak to him. He's distrustful of people in power, often government in power, but is also distrustful of, of wealthy, frankly, corporations in power. And so he actually wrote a remarkable concurring opinion in a case. This is going to be two in the weeds. So I'll only try to give the broad strokes of it. There's a big question about when private individuals, people who, who are hurt by corporations, corporate wrongdoing, where they can sue those corporations. Um, obviously, it's most convenient for us to be able to sue corporate wrongdoers in the states where we live. But corporations would like to only be sued in the state where they're incorporated, right? Their hometowns, so they can get home-cooked juries, and uh, uh, they can get a bunch of suits thrown out. Um, so this is a big question under the due process clause. Um, uh, for a long time, eight justices, including actually uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, were very protective of corporations, saying you can only sue corporations more or less in the places where they want to be sued. Um, Sonia Sotomayor dissented alone in a series of cases, saying, no, we ought to be allowing individuals to sue wrongdoers anywhere. Those businesses have a presence. You know, If, if they have storefronts in all the states, they should be suable in any state. Um, Neil Gorsuch wrote an interesting concurring opinion two years ago in 2020, um, saying that Ginsburg was wrong, Sotomayor, or Sotomayor was right, and he actually chastised uh, some of the other justices in the in the Ginsburg majorities in the earlier cases, saying what what are their what's their worries that corporations uh, are that large corporations are going to be treated unfairly? Like what what are they so worried about? Um, so you know, I think Gorsuch is the best hope to the to the extent there is a hope here for you know a sense of maybe more uh, economic equality. All right. Well, we've been talking for about an hour and uh, 15 minutes. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for the insights. Really great. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. That was University of California Davis law professor Aaron Tang. And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast which you can find on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or from wherever you get your podcasts. Plus, you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard. <laughs>